Bryn-Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to another special episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid COVID-19 coverage. It is Thursday, April 23rd, and we are well past a month now in our national lockdown quarantine shelter in place. Um, it's been interesting to go through this journey with everyone. We've sort of been trying to follow the story as it has developed, and um, hopefully you all have found this to be um, interesting and insightful, and we've had some wonderful guests. Um, today is no different. Today we're talking about how is, is the COVID-19 crisis impacting training programs and how are residents dealing with this along with what's going on with the um, with the faculty and, and how they how are they uh, coping with this. Blake, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest today. Yeah, sure, Gary. We have uh, an all-star cast representing uh, really the premier institutions for ophthalmology um, um, uh, in our country. So uh, really excited to have uh, Royce Chen from uh, my old alma mater, Columbia, Go Lions, with us. Uh, also, Priya Gupta for the Duke, uh, representing the Duke Blue Devils, Kendall Donaldson, the University of Miami Hurricanes. We have Uday Devgan, the UCLA Bruins, and we have, of course, Tom Oding from the uh, Iowa Hawkeyes. So, uh, Royce, I'm going to start with you, the home team. I did my grad school up there, so I spent a lot of time on 168th Street. Uh, but I'm also starting with you because, uh, man, uh, New York's kind of been the epicenter of this. So. Uh, we want to kind of just go around and, and talk about, you know, how this has been for the residents and training and, and kind of what's going on in your practice. And I imagine it's going to vary greatly by region. It's been crazy, obviously. And um, I think the biggest impact was that everything changed in mid-March. I think the beginning of March, things were relatively still normal, but we were starting to figure things out that we needed to change. And elective procedures canceled across the board by mid-March and the normal resident rotation stopped. And then at that point in time, we knew that COVID was going to be very easily transmissible. So we were going to try to separate residents out into separate teams. So we started having people stay at home all the time, except for very small groups. We canceled all the non-urgent uh, patient visits so that patient volumes were reduced by more than 90%. And then thought about the fact that patients were going to be going from the emergency room and the inpatient consults down to the clinic. We were going to try to limit those because we knew that these places would be hot spots for COVID. And so we separated the clinic patients out from the, those groups and then kept residents separate. Um, there are a lot of other changes that I could go on talking about, but um, those were the initial steps. Have you had anybody that, have you had any of the ophthalmology residents, you know, have to, to go back to the, to the wards and see patients or uh, are they in COVID wards at all or kind of what, what's been their participation and in, in, on the front line? So that's been every single day has been feeling like a week and every single week has felt like a month. So things have changed so much every single time. Um, at the end of March to the beginning of April time, we started redeploying our residents such that initially we found that the hotlines for all these people trying to figure out if they could come back to work after having COVID symptoms um, was getting totally inundated uh, compared to normal. Um, such that initially people were waiting for four hours on the phone to try to get back in and get an answer. So we rapidly populated those hotlines and residents were doing that. 
And then the ER and ICU needs became so great that at this point in time, seven of my 12 residents are doing um, ICU ER shifts, um, as am I and some other faculty members. Royce, just to you know, add to that, you know, have any of your residents or faculty, and if you can't comment on this, you know, just say pass, but um, you, know, you all are in the epicenter, you're being exposed. Have you all had any faculty member or residents actually test positive? Um, I tested positive. So I tested positive really? like pretty early on um, and I had pretty mild case of symptoms, which was actually highly instructive to me. Um, I was very glad that I was able to get testing and I joked that it was on my birthday that I got a COVID test um, on <laughs> in the middle of Happy March. Happy birthday. But, but it was actually, I little, literally had symptoms that were a little bit more than a cold. Um, and so I didn't know what to make of it. And I don't think any of us really did at that point in time, but then I got a positive result a few days later. So that was really helpful to tell my residents and colleagues, like take, pay attention to those very mild symptoms that you might have. It doesn't just have the severe shortness of breath that we all fear. Um, and because, you know, as doctors, I think we're, we're not used to taking days off and we don't feel like we should, especially if we just have mild cold symptoms. Um, but I think doing that and staying out when you could, especially in the middle of that March period when we were really short on masks and PPE um, and the guidelines kept changing, it was really critical to keep people out if they had minor symptoms um, so, so that they wouldn't infect a lot of other people. Yeah, there's always the old saying, you're, as a resident, you're either in the hospital or you're in the hospital. Yeah, right? I would so. say... There's actually a study that we've done that we haven't published yet, but it'll be published soon um, that showed that, um, you know, about at least like 15% of our resident population during this time had symptoms. Um, and so it's a large workforce kind of um, puzzle to figure out. So you compare that to what's going on on the other coast in Los Angeles, you know, things are quite different. Uday, what's been going on out there? It's a lot uh, quieter than New York City. We have most of our residents um, split up into small groups. So instead of me having six residents here at the county hospital, I have two and the others are at home and they kind of alternate weeks. Uh, clinic volume as well has been cut dramatically down about 90 or more percent. We're only doing truly emergency or, or very urgent cases. Like last night, there was a corneal laceration with ruptured lens capsule, ruptured globe case. So those cases we're still doing obviously but um, it's all otherwise very, very quiet here. None of our residents have been redeployed to other services. Um, so I don't think that's much of an issue here. And we're just taking it day by day. So Kendall, what's going on in, what's going on down in Miami? I mean, I know that, uh, you know, we actually saw a big, you know, I guess, um, population of people going from New York down to the Miami area as things are sort of heating up. Miami sort of became a secondary hot zone. Um, what are you guys seeing down there and how is it, you know, impacting you guys? Yeah, so, I mean, certainly nothing like what Royce was experiencing. Somewhere probably in the middle of what Royce and Uday were describing. Um, so yes, in, in the Miami Broward area, we've had a cluster of cases down here. Um, none of the faculty or residents have um, had COVID, but we've had several staff members and families of, of staff members. So we've had to quarantine. Um, many people, including our doctors, have been quarantined because several people in the operating rooms um, were hospitalized with COVID. So um, 
you know, our residents and fellows have really held us together. Honestly, they've been running the emergency services for us and they're still seeing about 85% of the volume that they normally see, you know, in the emergency and urgent care clinic. So the residents and fellows, we've actually organized a luncheon program where the faculty um, support buy them lunch each day because they've been doing, you know, all the, the tough work of being exposed. Um, although we have three levels of screening to even get into the building, but the residents and fellows have still been pretty busy. Although the rest of us are seeing about 15% of normal clinic volume because those are just post-ops and emergency patients. So, um, but the residents and fellows, even our cornea fellows, you know, I'm involved with them very much and, and they've been holding together the cornea faculty service as well. And I think we're really fortunate that this happened. We're not fortunate that it happened, but if it was going to happen, we're far enough into the year that most of our residents and fellows are much more independent. If this had happened in July or August, we, re we really would have had a difficult time. But I can tell you, even our cornea fellows, they're all so confident at this point in the year with their corneal surgeries that I'm thankful that it happened kind of late in the educational year that it won't affect them. In fact, they've already uh, met all their numbers as far as uh, finishing fellowships. So we're thankful for that amongst the fellows. Yeah, Kendall, I think that that's actually, you know, one of the silver linings of this is um, I work a lot closer with our fellows, um, but for even for, I think this applies to the residents as well, but um, not very many times are we given the opportunity to somewhat, you know, like really take on that independent role, but still be supervised. And I feel like one of the silver linings here is that, you know, the fellows um, and, you know, even like the senior residents have really had to step up a little bit. And, you know, sometimes they're seeing patients uh, alternating with the uh, attending and then it, the patient might see the fellow because they're the one in clinic that day. But it really, I, I mean, I've seen just in our, our cornea fellows, just this immense level of independence um, and opportunity for decision making, but still being supported, obviously, you know, I mean, they all know that we're a telephone call away, but sometimes, you know, when you're in clinic with your attending and that's, you know, most of your time, you know, you don't develop that pure independent um, thought process. So I, I, that has been pleasant to see. It's really tricky um, to keep things in the right direction. Uh, I, th I think that they're, um, at Iowa, we're very, very lucky. We're nowhere near where Royce is. And we have been bored. We have shift broken everybody into three groups. We have uh, a group that does all the tough stuff at night, consults. They do quarantine after. We have a group that does the clinic. We have a group that does the VA. And our peak is not till mid-May. And we are kicking up a little bit. So we're nervous. Um, I think the, the exciting part about this has been uh, things like Zoom and things like opportunities to push simulation. But I think the scary thing is, is, is are people ready to leave? People have missed out on opportunities to learn. And uh, so we're, we're sort of juggling that whole issue of are people ready to leave? And I Tom. think uh, for, we're lucky in our program, we have good volume, but there's programs out there that that are seriously considering keeping people longer and, and, and things like that. So I, it's, it's a tricky problem for academic centers. Tom, for you let me, guys. Let me ask you about that. Um, the, uh, you know, it's, it's specifically to, for, for people who are watching this, who may be in training, 
Um, looks like we have about 100 people hanging out with us today. And, you know, what about the idea of, of a fellowship after this, if they weren't considering doing that? If they're, if they're a third year who was counting on these last five or six months to really drive their numbers, even if they met their numbers, I mean, there's a difference between doing 85 cataracts and 185 cataracts, I think, at that stage, you know. Um, so do you guys think that there's going to be you know, people staying on for a fellowship or what about these private fellowships that have been, you know, have been popular in the last few years? Are we going to see more? Well, I mean, I think this well, year, I think most, people this year most people have, jobs, people have jobs already. So they're, so all, they're hoping all hoping that they're going to be, be meaningful, meaningful and void in, in uh, August. August. But I, but I, I think, think that, that there, there is some responsibility of those accepting practices to um, potentially help people move along. I mean, there's that great, there's that great Canadian study that, that shows that, you, um, you know, you learn for 10 years after anyway. So it's not like anything magical happens when we graduate. But I, I, I do think it's important for, um, uh, for us to um, continue, you know, mentoring people as they come out. I think it's important to understand too, just how much we're learning throughout our careers, even afterwards. Yeah. So we learn we, we look at uh, a resident now, instead of finishing with 300 cataracts in our program, we do 200. Even if you do half the number, 150, you're not even close at 300 cases to being halfway up the cataract bell curve. That's the truth. We all know this, that there's a huge difference between case number 300 and case number 1,000 to be done. So the idea is that, you know, you're going to keep continuing to learn when you finish your training, you've gotten to practice. The other thing is COVID's going to change everything. And I'm not sure if you started a private practice fellowship, let's say with me in my private clinic, July 1 or August 1, I don't know if I'm going to have volume for you. Mm -hmm. I think COVID's going to change society permanently going forward, the same way that 9-11 changed travel in the U.S. and security. And so I don't anticipate, for me, when will I feel comfortable going out to dinner and a movie? When that date comes, that's when patients are going to be comfortable having refractive cataract surgery and LASIK. I have a question for you, Tom. Um, yes. In places like Iowa, which haven't been struck as hard, had, have you guys or have your department ever felt like the restrictions were too restricting at this point in time that you should have been continuing to see more patients um, or not? There's definitely some sense that we should start up. And we're going to slowly start in May. But we have severe shortages of masks right and so we uh we're only going to do clinic and uh we're not going to use a lot of trainees and stuff in the or you know can i make a comment about what blake was mentioning before so i think there have been a lot of independent fellowships that have popped up and there have been great private doctors that, that offer these fellowships and we were mentioning that the volume's going to be low. They mentioned for a very long time. One of the best things I felt like I did after fellowship was I went and observed different people that I respected. And there are a lot of other doctors. Like, I would love to go spend some time with Uday or Blake. And everyone welcomes that. You know, if so, if, if the numbers are really low as you get started in your practice, you can always go observe with people. You know, spend some time if you don't have a formal fellowship arranged so you could observe multiple people go see vance thompson another great practice you can learn from various practices so you can create those opportunities yourself i think 
Well, it was actually something you'd mentioned before uh, we started. You talked about how your residents are, you're sort of encouraging them during this time to become more independent learners. And so I think that kind of gets to what a lot of us are sort of saying is you learn beyond residency. You can extend your learning throughout your career. But if you learn how to independently learn while you're a resident, that's sort of like teaching a man to fish. So what are you doing right now or how are you encouraging your residents right now to learn independently, whether it's through, you know, online lectures or simulations or just what are you doing right now or how are you encouraging them? Yeah. Um, so, you know, to me, becoming an independent learner is kind of one of those high level skills that, you know, if you made it through med school and, you know, you're making it through residency, you have a basic skill set in being an independent learner. Um, and I think that in residency and fellowship, you know, we spend a lot of time establishing a curriculum and there's kind of a set path. And so some of that independence, um, you know, you're, you're short on time, you're busy in clinic. So some of it's guided for you. Um, and in this time, you know, we're probably a little bit more, um, you know, we're definitely not New York, but, you know, we're somewhere in between and um, we've taken, you know, a very limited approach to having people in clinic and yes, the residents are, are kind of our frontline folks, but there's still a lot of time um, that, that is in, in a day that where you can learn something. And so, you know, compared to when, you know, I feel like when I was in training or even in med school, uh, whatnot, the amount of resources that we have access to today is astronomical. You know, there are uh, cataract surgery, step-by-step, step, you know, geared towards the resident, geared towards the, the early surgeon, you know, in your first few years of practice, geared towards somebody that's done, you know, 100,000 FACOs in their life. And so the, it doesn't matter what level you're at, there is access to learning. And it really, you know, to me, I feel like so far, I, I'm just learning how to encourage people to be independent learners, but some of it is, you know, I will bring up a topic and say, hey, you know, let's, let's see what we can find on how to do, whether it's a surgical technique or an interesting case, you know, that I might have seen with a resident. And, you know, kind of giving, getting them into that habit of seeking out that education. You know, one of the things that I noticed, I, it turns out that I, I think I'm actually an independent learner because when, which I, I wouldn't have said otherwise, but when, you know, the quarantine hit, this is what, like week six, I, I've lost count of what day it is. You know, I, I went to clinic yesterday and I was like, oh man, like, it, like what time do I have to get there? You know, like I show up late to meetings and I haven't left my house, but um, within the first two weeks, like I signed myself up for master class and like Duolingo for Spanish, you know, and I, and it, th those are things that I've done on, like I hit my 30 day streak for Duolingo yesterday. So at least for 30 days, I've been we'll be doing in. it, but but those are the things that I feel like, you know, when you have time and opportunity, which whether we like it or not, COVID is going to give us time. We, I mean, the, the opportunity is there for them to create, you know, a meaningful education experience and a meaningful learning. I think, and I agree, Gary. I think that, I think that you know, that's going to be increased more and more. And we have two people on this call that were way ahead on this. I mean, Tom, you, know, you were doing the, the Facebook and the Instagram videos years ago. I was following that, and I was like, man, I can't wait to meet him. This is before I found out you were an Alabama fan. Uh, and then Uday, uh, you know, everything that you're doing with Cataract Coach, I mean, so do you guys think that that's going to be our, our more and more as time goes on? I'd, I'd like to comment. 
just on uh, what Uday's done, because I agree, it's just amazing. His cataract coach uh, series has been used by our residents and it's, a, it's an amazingly comprehensive um, set. And um, having been in that business a little bit, I realized how hard it is to crank out a video every day like he's done. And uh, I really think that that is an amazing resource. And I think that more and more our residents are, are drawn to those resources. And more and more, I hear them come up to me and say, hey, that's not the way Dr. Devgan would do it, which, which I seriously resent. It really upsets me. <laughs> I just want to tell you right now. Well, but the, well, Tom, um, the, last time, the last time I had dinner with your residents at the ACRs in San Diego, I did ask them that my dream is for Tom Oden to come watch me in my OR and critique me. <laughs> I, 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 I bet I couldn't so believe the, uh, the marble and gold there. I'd like to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I think these important these online resources have really gone up. I think our on Cataract Coach, I can tell you, a year ago we were at a thousand twelve hundred views in a day. Maybe Christmas time we were at fifteen hundred, and we're routinely hitting two thousand views a day now. So volume viewership has certainly gone up. Um, I think there are a lot of important online resources across the board, and the one key thing I want to tell to any young doctor, any young resident who's listening is, you're not going to do surgery the same way now as compared to five or 10 years from now. So whether or not there's COVID, you're gonna keep evolving your techniques. There are things that just didn't exist 10 years ago, yet we're doing them routinely today. The future is gonna be the same way. So it's important, like Priya says, learn to teach yourself. You gotta be able to avoid being spoon fed, but in fact, go out there, get it and say, here's what I'm gonna learn and I'm gonna make this happen. And so even and, if you don't have access to the surgery, you're, you're not in the, in the OR, you got a wet lab, you've got other uh, things, you definitely have to make the effort though. I have a comment to make. Um, I totally agree that the virtual simulators and these platforms and the online uh, videos are great. Um, I think Uday and Tom, and what the, you guys have done at Iowa have been great and we have some similar kinds of things at Columbia too. Um, but I think one of the things that I think is about independence is that this whole situation and really trying to figure out which patients need to be seen and which patients don't and kind of going through that process is actually really critical. And it's forcing people, residents to make tough decisions as to really determine the severity and risk stratification of patients. And that's actually a really valuable skill that I think will carry on in the future too. Um, and that's going to help drive how we actually move forward in the future, kind of developing hybrid models of clinics figuring out which ways that we used to see patients were just completely unnecessary and a waste of time um, versus ones that are absolutely necessary to be seen in person and things like that. So I think that's a positive byproduct of this time. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Royce. And, and Kendall, I've got a question for you. Um, you know, I know that uh, Rania Habash uh, at Bascom has been sort of at the forefront of telemedicine um, it seems like this, this COVID-19 crisis has forced us all to do things that we could have done before, but we just didn't have the right motivation to do them. What do you think about incorporating telemedicine? Um, and this is just, you know, I'm just asking you to guess or give, give your opinion, but what do you think about incorporating telemedicine into residency training? And do you think that will be something that is sort of a, a new normal for evaluating some of those patients? Absolutely. I mean, telemedicine is going to be the way of the future. I think ophthalmology is less geared toward a telemedicine than a lot of other fields, although 
you know, over the last month, we've learned a lot about it. And we've been talking about telemedicine now for years, and we weren't able to really move forward with it because some of the restrictions as far as you know, just security and how to bill for it, now that all those restrictions have been released, it's made it a lot easier for us. Um, so I've been doing a half a half a day a week with just telemedicine clinic, uh, which you know, it's been, I'd say 75% of the patients are able to, to do it alongside of us. You know, about 25% of the time we have to revert to a, just a regular phone call for some of those, some of the older patients, because we use Zoom as a platform within Epic, which is a little more complicated than some of the other um, plans I've seen other people using out there. But um, so it, it is a way of the future. And I think it's helped a lot of people stay home. You know, a lot of times we can just talk to the patient. And so the residents and fellows are, are learning alongside of us, but it's going to be a, a way for all of us to see patients in the future. You know, maybe not a new patient unless you're teaching them about cataract surgery or teaching them their options for, you know, vision correction procedures. But I think it can reduce time in the office, which is going to be key for all of us. So it'll be a part. I mean, maybe this is a good thing that they're learning. You know, this is a, a change in the way we're going to do, you know, practice medicine forever and ever. This is a part of our lives. And Kendall and Gary, I mean, like, you know, teleeducation too, Gary, I think you brought it th brought this up before the call started, but like, you know, how cool would it be if we could zoom in to Grand Rounds at Bascom? I mean, with all these, you know, and Duke and UCLA and on and on, I mean, I couldn't have gotten into one of these programs. I'm sure there's a lot of residents that would love to be in on, on these Grand Rounds. So, you know, not only for residents to, 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 to interact with patients, but for residents to get training, at least remotely, at least occasionally from world-class places like this, I think will live on. I think that one of the things that we're just learning, you know, everything's like still kind of in crisis mode, I think. But one of the things we're learning is that like part of um, this education process is motivating our residents and fellows. And, you know, um, they're, they're definitely, you know, I mentioned I went into clinic yesterday and, you know, I left and I was kind of like a little sad, you know, it's not the same space. It's not the same environment it's everything's totally different you can't i had a resident with me in clinic and you know i like we're trying to stand a few feet apart but i'm trying to show her you know things that are uh, happening we have teaching scopes on our microscopes but you know you you have to take into account the morale and the attitude and the feelings that residents and fellows who are even more so on the front line you know and just in this early period i think take some of that um anxiety and help them repurpose it for something more productive like you know like what you're talking about like you know i i think that it's energizing to be able to collaborate and see other people and see you know other institutions grand rounds and i think part of our job is going to be to a give more people access to things like that right from the academic community like spreading spreading it out and then making it more open but I think we also need to, as teachers and mentors, we also need to help our, our students sort of bridge that gap of crisis mode to, okay, this is here to stay. How, how do we do this better and how do we help you more? Yeah, that perfectly answers that, that, that question that just came in. And for everyone, everyone watching this, uh, please feel free to start entering in some questions at the bottom. We'll try to get to it. The question is about how to boost morale. Priya, I think that's excellent. Royce, what are you doing? I'm in New York. You guys are you know, your residents are in the, in the wards. How are you boosting morale amongst your, your residents there? Um, one thing is that we do check in very regularly. We still, we always had a morning report um, in person, 
and we've maintained that on Zoom conference. And um, that was usually just one or two attendings, but now because every multiple attendings are at home, there are now multi-specialty attendings attending these conferences. We check in with each other. We do symptom checks with each other, um, make sure nobody has a fever or anything like that at the same time. And then we also discuss lots of cases together. So that's been really great. We've, like many institutions, created a lot more lecture opportunities um, with a lot of our faculty. So I think that's allowed people to mix with some faculties that they wouldn't have had as much exposure to um, in this period. Um, one of the things that's, you know, the psychological impact is very great for all of us in the country, I think. I think the whole world is feeling anxiety, uh, but certainly we're feeling it a lot in New York City. Um, especially with redeployment and things like that. So there are other ways that we've kind of tried to adjust for morale and that's having um, psychiatrists come and speak to the residents or to the faculty members and actually talk to them. And then we've also created narrative medicine sessions um, with our Columbia Narrative Medicine Department to have people express you know, their stories and their feelings through narrative form and share those with each other. So. Those are some of the ways that we're doing it. One of the other special things is that we partnered with all the New York City programs across the city um, to share all of our lectures with each other to further create a sense of unity that we're all in this together. And I think that's been great. What a great yeah. idea. So, something that uh, Blake said kind of resonated with me. He said, you know, um, you know I, I, I would not have, and I did not get into any of the residencies that are represented here. I mean, these are some of the top programs in the country. Um, but I went to a, a really great residency at the University of Kentucky. Um, but there, I wonder if there is going to be sort of a have and have not between sort of your bread and butter rep, ophthalmology residency programs and sort of the top tier programs that are represented here. And, and so one of the things I wonder is, you know, the, 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 the top tier residencies may have access to more simulation technologies, maybe better lectures, maybe more attendings in various fields. And, you know, we talk about flattening the curve, you know, is there a way through coordinating, you know, with grand rounds and coordinating a lecture series where we, we can sort of share that expertise and, and those didactics across, you know, a, a wider variety, you know, I'd rather maybe hear from the top experts in each field than the top expert at each program, you know? So um, Tom, I know you said that you've been doing some coordination, maybe like Royce has with, with some Midwestern programs. How are you able to do that? And do you, do you foresee a time when we could potentially have a national grand rounds program where we're going through OCAP content and, and you know, we're, we're sort of having a more, um, you know, the best lecturer in every category given, you know, resident lectures on a more um, scheduled uh, time period? I think there's a chance that that would be useful. The, the problem you have with a big Zoom group is it's hard to interact very much. And so if it's really didactic and it's not interactive, I think it's useful. Um, and so what we've done is just basically share Zoom addresses. And uh, that's been useful with a group of Midwestern programs. There's a Google calendar and people share. Um, I would like to back up just a little bit and just mention one of the things we've done here, which is both educational and I think it helps with morale, and it's very inexpensive, is just to get the artificial eyes and take them to your operating room and get out the, the tray that you usually use and just play around. And I think it doesn't really matter what you do. I think if you're under the microscope and you're using the foot pedals and you're using the, your hands, it's productive. And 
we've been trying to get our faculty honestly to do this for years and mm -hmm. have met with resistance. But since we've had this like six week gap, we have, we have gone crazy with simulation. And it's been a very fun, uh, high fivey kind of thing, but not, not real high five, you know, sort of, you know. <laughs> Elbow. But the, um, and it's very inexpensive. You can get these eyes for like 30 bucks. And a lot of people already have these eyes around. But if you don't have the artificial eyes, it's still fun just to, just to suture something or, I don't know, write your name on a piece of rice or something. But I, I, I just think getting your hands and eyes coordinated in the microscope, getting in there. And, you know, Priya was talking about how foreign it feels to go into, into her clinic. Well, wait till you go into the operating room after six weeks. You're going to feel like you're some kind of alien or something. And so I, I just recommend you, you get into your own operating room, get, get the nurses around, to talk about stuff and get in there and it, it'll make you feel a little bit better, a little less anxious. You know, I, I, just to, to follow along with that, the Boinko models that he's talking about are very helpful. That's what we have for our, our residents as well. But also this is an opportunity for industry. You know, I think, you know, we run the second year and third year resident, Baco Curriculum, Jobson, Alcon, BNL, J&J, you know, &J, all those companies um, run FACO courses for the second year and third year residents. And we have some organized for the fall already, but I think we may be able to organize extra courses at the end of all of this uh, to help with the third year residents that, that maybe didn't get as much exposure this, this year. Um, so that would be a great opportunity for industry to get involved in helping these, these third year residents as needed. You know, it's the horse, not the track that wins the race. So even these are elite programs, Bascom's amazing, Iowa, Columbia, Duke. It's a great resident. You're self-motivated and self-driven. You can succeed and learn all this in any program. You don't have to be at some sort of elite program made by some you know, arbitrary list of, of top places. You know, I came into the county hospital here early in the morning and I saw my junior resident. In the back room, we have a 25-year-old microscope that we still kept even though we bought a new one because they wouldn't give us enough for the trade-in. He's sitting under there with 10 nylon suturing a cherry tomato. I mean, this is, that's the one I want to do in my FACO in the future. So. Yeah, we have a couple questions here. Um, uh, Pri, I'm gonna throw this to you. Um, and, and this is kind of what I was getting at. I, I figured people listening would want to know this stuff. Karina says, um, uh, uh, Kendall mentioned uh, needing to go through three levels of screening to enter the building. I'm curious what people are currently doing, what they plan to do whenever their staff comes back in. And then uh, David Wallace is asking about social distancing and he's saying, you know, do we really need to be that far away from people if we and the patients are both wearing masks? Because the idea is, you know, if both us and the patients are in masks, you know, is that, do you really have to be six feet away? So uh, Priya, maybe talk about what y'all are doing um, uh, over there uh, in terms of how people can, can come in and what the PPE you're in and what the patients are in. Yeah, I mean, like very relevant questions and things that we're sorting out. We are softly opening on May 4th um, with limited, like, you know, uh, 10 patients per session per provider. So, you know, 20, up to 20 patients a day, but, you know, kind of like all, still urgent emergent, but maybe the people you've been putting off for four to six weeks that you kind of wish you could see um, are being included in that sort of soft opening. Um, currently, and, and this is going to continue on, I don't know for how long, but um, when you enter in a building, um, there we have a desk and there's two employees sitting there. They ask the five typical screening questions, you know, shortness of breath, fever, travel. Um, and then 
there is mandatory hand washing that happens. So the patients get a pump of hand sanitizer and then they're issued a mask. Um, and then they wear their mask while they're in the building. They're not supposed to take the mask off. We'll talk about that in a second. And then the provider has a mask on and goes through that same process when they enter the building and you know follows the same rules. And so I agree with you. I don't know that you need to be six feet apart, but you know the masks that we're giving these patients are not N95 masks. They are often surgical masks, you know, um, or some version of whatever kind of mask we could get. So. I think that while social distancing, the exact, you know, six feet might not be as relevant, we still can't have patients sitting, you know, six inches away from one another like they are uh, typically. And so waiting room space is certainly something. Some of our clinics have better waiting room space than others. Um, we are contemplating, uh, at least in our satellite clinic, doing the sort of the drive up where you know, you get worked up by a technician with your mask on, and then you go sit in your car until the doctor's ready to see you. Um, but you know, that, uh, that to me is at least a way to sort of re-enter. And, and we're talking about this in our ORs, um, you know, just kind of doing a handful of cases, maybe spread out every 45 minutes to an hour just to get the processes in place. Um, as you can imagine, there's so many ways that this can break down. So part of my disheartening feeling yesterday was when I went back to clinic, you know, these were all patients that needed to be seen. Everyone had a mask. Everyone, you know, I'm washing my hands and doing the whole nine yards, but you know, you're talking to a patient and, and as humans, we do not like to not see people's face like in, in full. So I would have literally not 95% of the patients I saw yesterday with a mask on took off their mask to talk to me, right. To be like, Oh, okay. You know, whatever we had to, the interchange we had, and then they put their mask back on. So you really aren't in this, you know, so when you ask about social distancing, I mean, I think if we could be 100% compliant and actually know how to use masks and have good hand hygiene, I think we'd, we should feel safer at, to, to proceed on. But the bottom line is that our patients are really not, you know, they're not using surgical technique. They're not just like, you know, taking the loop of the mask off on the side. And so I think that that's, those are the things that are going to sort of crush the system. And it really requires even down to the employees, you know, like I, no one likes that mask for eight hours a day. Yes. Uday. Yes. That is amazing. Yeah. Do this whole conference. And, like you're just not going to make it. Right. Um, and so I think those are going to be like the important protocols that at least we try to uphold. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know what, if you just take that N95 and put it like and expose your nose, that's what I saw several times yesterday, you know, right. That, cause you're like, uh, right. Cause things don't come out of your nose. So, <laughs> um, so I think that those, those are going to be, um, the, the way of, of, you know, going in, but we really need better safer ways to, you know, whether it's serologic testing, you know, just to bridge ourselves until um, the next wave or the next, uh, you know, exposure risk. Kendall, I'm going to ask you about your process and you too, Royce, because, uh, you know, you guys are in some hard hit areas. Um, uh, I'm curious if you do anything different than that or additive to that or, or what. Before I do, I do think it's important that we thank our, our, our support uh, for allowing uh, uh, us to get together uh, and do these meetings. I think it's very important. Thank you very much to Allergan and Johnson & Johnson, Ari Novartis, Santine, Kayla Pharmaceuticals, Diametrix, Avellino, and Dompe. Thank you guys so much for supporting Off the Grid. Um, so, uh, Kendall, are y'all doing anything different th than that? I mean, and, and Royce, you chime in too, uh, 
uh, we want to be safe here whenever we get restarted. So I had mentioned before the three levels of screening before the patient comes into the building. So they get the phone call two days before that goes through the questions, basically, you know, have you had any travel, any fevers, any dry cough, and then they're eliminated at that point if they've had any of those symptoms. The second level of screening is when they come to the office. Outside of the building, there are two desks where there's several people sitting and they go through questions again. Everyone is given a mask at that point. So all patients are wearing a mask, all, all staff are wearing a mask. If anything comes up positive there, they're sent to a tent. In the tent, um, which is also in the parking lot, um, we have a nurse practitioner who's checking their temperature, you know, deciding if they need to have COVID testing. Um, we have three COVID testing centers right within five miles of our office. So we can either send them there uh, if it is a surgical patient, all surgical patients have to be tested for COVID. Um, right now we have the two hour test, but hopefully within the next two weeks, you know, we'll be able to have that 15 minute test. But all the patients that are going to surgery are being tested. We do have two negative pressure rooms um, in our uh, two negative pressure ORs now that we just have built out. And then there's a negative pressure area in our lobby. So they can also um, come into that area if they're waiting for a test result or something like that. So those are the, the levels of testing. Um, the, the PPE is very similar to what Priya said. I would just add one thing. You know, we don't allow any visitors to come in with the patients. So that's pretty much reduced the number of people in our waiting room to half. And so not having the spouse or you know, someone else, and they're told about that in advance. So we don't wanna surprise them at the door that, oh, you can't bring someone in with you. But we do have people that our staff can escort them through the process if needed. So that cuts down on the number of people. But I don't think people will ever want to wait in our crowded waiting room again, you know, even after all this. I mean, there were times where there were no seats in the past. You know, people had to stand to wait for us. Our clinics were so crowded, they would wait for four hours. And I don't think that's ever going to be seen as acceptable in the future. So, you know, I think the way people think about going to the doctor is different, you know. Um, so that's something to think about as we move forward. When are we all going to feel comfortable going to a restaurant? Um, when are we going to feel comfortable, you know, wanting to go get LASIK surgery or, you know, other refractive surgery? Those are going to be, I think people are going to self-select, um, you know, and I, when I look at like my schedules that haven't been cleared out yet because we, we aren't sure if we're closing or not, um, you know, I, I imagine that half of those patients are not going to want to come in anyway. So you know, between limiting the number of people in your building, but also realizing that there's probably a lot of patients that don't want to come in. That should cut down the numbers uh, overall. Our protocols are pretty similar, I think, to what Kendall was describing. We have screening, uh, a pretty robust triage system on the phone beforehand, and then the patients come and then they're, they get temperature checks at the door, everybody gets a mask and they come in. Um, of course, we can't social distance and still evaluate patients. At a certain point in time, we need to like say that this patient needs to be evaluated and we will do what we need to evaluate them. The second thing that I think we need to do is how can we still uphold our educational missions as residency training programs with limited volumes of patients coming in. So we have to grapple with the fact that our, we're gonna have less volume, less surgical volume, and we need to kind of squeeze out more um, learning from each patient. So whether that means that the resident is evaluating the patient with the attending, um, that's something that we need to kind of think about. Um, same with the waiting rooms, we need to keep those relatively limited. 
ideas that we thought about for that, we don't have parking lots where patients can wait, but we can at least put everybody in one room and just have them isolated that way and then have very limited movement within the clinics. And uh, if we use waiting rooms to kind of social distance or kind of barrier, um, isolate the waiting rooms. Um, one of the things that we thought about, and I'm sure many practices have been thinking about that too, is how do we extend time um, so that we can space patients out more out of, over time. And that would be potentially extending clinic hours throughout the day and also utilizing weekends um, to help support that. So these are all ways that we're gonna do it. I'm certain that patients are losing vision right now um, because they're afraid to come in. And it'll also be our job to figure out um, how we can get, how we can convince the patients that it'll be safe to come in. I do believe that a patient wearing a mask and a doctor wearing a mask is a pretty safe situation. There's pretty good data to support that the rate of transmission is very, very much lowered when both are wearing masks. So I think to a certain extent, we need to start trusting that and be able to communicate that trust to our patients. Yeah, and Gary, yeah. Gary, I think that, I think that, you know, one thing I want to add to that and curious what you think about it, like, you know, and Priya brought this up, it's one thing to have a rules about PPE, it's another thing to enforce them, right? So think about mm -hmm. that lunchroom, you know, uh, we just, we just, we just did, did a rule today, we told our team there will be no eating or drinking inside Williamson Eye Center, right? Because our thought was, they, they kept saying, well, we'll space out six feet, and we'll do this, and we'll do that. And I'm like, man, that's going to crumble in no time. Just to make it clean, we said, you know what? No eating or drinking inside. We, we bought some picnic tables for outside. You can do it in your car, etc. So I think the enforcement of PPE is very important. And the, the, for the folks that are asking about social distancing and questioning science and things like that, that doesn't really matter. What matters is the perception of safety with your patients. Their perception right. of safety is the most important thing. Even if there's not good data to support why you're doing what you're doing from a PPE standpoint, it doesn't matter if you lose that patient because they think you're unsafe. Don't you think, Gary? Yeah, a couple, a couple of things. You know, my whole family has gotten a um, residency in sterile technique because once I go to the grocery store, you know, we have this table set up and, and you know, I'm, I'm basically opening things like I'm a, you know, a scrub nurse and, and putting them on the other side of the table. I'm like, this is the sterile side. This is the dirty side. We don't cross contaminate. Once you touch something, you wash your hands. And I'm like, everyone should know this. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how we as physicians sort of understand this. It's our, it's our native tongue, but no one else like Pri was saying, you know, wear their mask down. And it's like, why, what are you doing? You are, you're not, you're not getting it. Um, so I do think that, you know, Understanding how to wear PPE, understanding sterile technique, all this stuff is is really, really super important. So um, I also go ahead, think Priya. empowering your staff is really important. You know, like I, I, I know we're focusing on our trainee, trainees here in this conversation, but, you know, at the end of that clinic session, the there was two technicians there that were helping me and I, I pulled them aside and I was like, you guys are doing an amazing job, but do not feel embarrassed or shy to tell a patient to put their mask back on or to right. not touch anything or to not touch their face. And, and really, you know, as, as you know, a team, which is really what I, you know, I consider, you know, it's not just me seeing patients, all of my staff from the front desk to the technician, to the schedulers, they're all seeing these patients. It's just so critical that they feel empowered to uh, protect themselves and also advocate, you know, kind of what you said, Blake, of, you know, carrying this right foot forward of like, if you're here, we want to take care of you, but we want to do it safely. And I think that message should carry on to the residents, should carry on to the fellows that they feel empowered. 
I want to just add to that, Priya, and I want to bring Tom in on this question because, you know, while we want to make sure patients feel safe, we do know that every time they're out in public interacting with new folks, there's a potential for transmission or cross-contamination. And this is an area that I think academia could lead us, um, and that's the idea of bilateral uh, sequential cataract surgery. Uh, We know what the barriers have been in the past. You know, we've worried about, you know, whether we should use intracameral antibiotics Um, I think the biggest barrier, honestly, has been the multiple procedure uh, payment reduction. But Tom, are you guys thinking about considering um, maybe doing some um, bilateral cataract surgery as a way to decrease patient exposure during this time? And just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, I I appreciate asking the question. We've been doing that for about a year and a half at our VA, where we don't have to worry about fee-for-service issues and have found it to be wildly successful. We um, have found it uh, saves visits, saves driving, uh, and uh, patients and their families love it. Uh, in the context of COVID, we have not done it because we, well, actually the last cases we did before we closed down were bilateral. So yes, I, th- I do think it's interesting because it, it cuts down on everybody's exposure um, for those cataract surgeries. Uh, I, I, I really think that it would be wildly ad- adopted or widely adopted if it wasn't for the fee-for-service uh, issues. Um, so I, th- I think that's exciting. And, and these are resident cases. And so what we do is we wait till residents have 60 cases under their belt and I'm confident with them doing it and then the residents doing it. So it doesn't cut down on the number of cases residents do. Um, I will say, it, it was funny when Priya was talking, I was, I was thinking about, I think it was Priya that was talking, maybe Kendall was talking about the, uh, the, the, the negative pressure rooms. They, they installed these at our VA where they're gonna examine these patients, but the big tube that comes out from those rooms comes right to the area where we check into the hospital. I always thought that was kind of funny. So maybe we're all getting just a little bit. <laughs> the COVID spray. <laughs> yes. And, and TB. Maybe how we're gonna get immunity, Tom. I, you know, I was right. thinking about, I'm thinking about Royce over there. He looks so immune. He looks so, so strong. Maybe we could bring him to Iowa to see all of our patients. Yeah, Royce, do you think that um, we've, we're talking about antibody or we're talking about testing? What about antibody testing? Um, you know, part of the knock on antibody testing has been, you know, if the, you know, relative or the um, incidence of the case is less than 1% and your false positive rate is 4 or 5%, then, you know, you're getting a pretty low yield on, on, on uh, who's actually possibly immune. Are you guys doing antibody testing? Is that something that you're seeing getting rolled out? And where do you see the, um, I think it would work more in New York where there's probably a much higher um, caseload r- rather yeah. than like Kentucky where we've had, you know, relatively uh, lower incidence. Yeah, I think it has to be, it might need to be a region by region kind of uh, policy, but I've gotten antibody testing and I think we still don't know fully what the antibody testing means. And so we really need to explore that further, but the goal is to really make this widespread at this point in time in New York, in our hospital, any healthcare provider that actually had COVID or had symptoms can get antibody tested at this point in time. And then that'll gradually be rolled out to more people. Um, so I think that is part of our strategy to figure out how we can get healthcare workers safely back um, and seeing people. It's also, it's like factoring a little bit into our figuring out how we can get patients. Maybe do we have like antibody positive patients clinics? You know things like that where we know it'll be safer. Um, I think the, in terms of the incidence in the population, I think we're probably well over 
in the 10 to 30% range of New York's New Yorkers infected at this point in time. So um, I, I can just imagine like New York fashion week having, you know, a Louis Vuitton <laughs> um, LV case for the antibody tests so that people can show that they're immune in style. They can yeah. wear it like a pendant. Priya, would you wear that? Mask. It comes with a mask. Yeah. Well, you don't need the mask. If you have <laughs> the immunity, you can actually trade in, you know, one for the well, other. Well, I've seen the designer masks already. Have you they, really? Yeah. And I don't know if people just like cut them out of like, you know, a shirt that they had with the print on it and made a mask, but it, mm-hmm. it, the fashion industry is not missing out on the opportunity <laughs> to uh, rock it in style. I mean, keep in mind that we don't fully know that the antibodies mean immunity yet, too. So there's there's still a lot unknown that we need to study. But it's interesting thinking about, you know, having different, you know, clinics, you know, an antibody positive clinic, or you know, I was talking to, to uh, we, we have a family care practice that's across the street from one of my locations, and I was talking to that doctor, and he was saying that they see their patients, uh, the, the last patients of the day are those the ones that are calling in for an appointment because of upper respiratory issues, right? Because the idea is it could be COVID related. And he asked me the question of, you know, what about conjunctivitis? For those people coming in for conjunctivitis, are you seeing them at the end of the day? And I said, oh, that's very interesting. Has anybody kind of thought about that? Uh, Kendall or Tom or anybody, have, have y'all kind of, you know, put the conjunctivitis patients at the end of the day because it could be potentially a source of COVID or presenting symptoms? Um, no, but they're going through the screening process as well. We have seen some viral conjunctivitis patients, but we're not seeing them in the clinic if they've had a fever or the cough or you know travel or anything like that. So we haven't put them at the end of the day. Although I do have to tell you, my general ophthalmologist about two hours ago, she, she texted me a photograph of this horrible conjunctivitis in a COVID patient. And um, he was just released from the hospital two weeks ago. And he has this conjunctivitis since then. So, um, but we did it sort of distantly, basically a telehealth visit today. We did not have that patient come in. So we handled it distantly. We, we also have been trying to use telehealth for all uh, conjunctivitis sounding histories and, and they can't come in unless they've gone through the screening. That's what we're doing too. I would like to do telehealth for every conjunctivitis patient forever <laughs> from now on. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Why not? So one, one thing I want to I tease here a little bit, because this is something Blake and I talked about and we talked about with the BMC staff. So uh, this will be news to everyone who is on this call, including our, our, uh, our panelists. But, you know, once upon a time, there was a cataract surgery competition that was sponsored through ACEs. It was called the Bloomberg Memorial Cataract Competition, something I participated in and a lot of, um, you know, folks did through the years. And at some point, I think it sort of stopped. But I would love, and I can't promise anything at this point, but if you're a resident out there and you have a good cataract case, I would suggest that you polish that up and get ready to submit that. Because what I'd love to do during this time when residents are kind of sitting around, and not that you're sitting around, you're probably reading your BCSC books and preparing for OCAPs and all that stuff. But if you have a good cataract case that's on video file somewhere, get that ready because I would love to bring back um, some way to honor uh, the residents who are really trying hard and doing great surgeries and maybe having a first, second, and third place with some uh, cash prize, uh, potentially. So I can't promise anything. How much money, but, are, we um, How much money are we talking? You got to show them the money, Gary. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about $1,500 for first place. So, um, you know, we can, we can sort of be generous, I think. We can probably find an industry sponsor out there somewhere 
Wink, I see, wink. I see Aaron, help us with that. I see Aaron Powers on the call, so so we'll be we'll be calling Zeiss. So <laughs> shouldn't the cataract coach get a piece of the pie? Yeah, the cataract <laughs> coach. You know, I'll just judge. I'll just do the judging. Oh, the judge. Okay. Think oh. of how many Louis Vuitton uh, paper carriers you could get. Yes. So if you guys would be willing to be judges for this upcoming competition. Um, you know, please let me know because we would like to have some way to sort of say to the residents, thank you for continuing excellency. And also, you know, I think it's, it's something when you're doing those surgeries, you think about, Hey, I want this to look good. I want it to be perfect. Every step matters. Um, so it's another way to encourage excellence. So I think that's something that we can sort of, I'm just teasing it. You know, we might be able to do this in the near future and maybe at the upcoming, um, online BMC symposium that's happening May 7th and 8th. It might be a, a nice time to be able to, to actually uh, either reveal it or, or give more details. So, um, Blake, any, any final comments on, on what we, I think we've learned so much. It's so fun to just connect with our friends and colleagues around the country. Any final thoughts on, on what we've heard today? Yeah, so for today, I mean, I think that uh, we did our job, which is to, to look to our academic institutions that are the leaders in, in, in ophthalmology to sort of inform us uh, not only about what's happening uh, in terms of training, but also inform us on what they're doing to protect themselves and their patients, because we look at our, our teaching institutions for that guidance as well. So I want to thank all of you guys for coming onto the show. Also look forward to next week as well. We're going to have the presidents of AAO and ASCRIS come on the show and talk about some of the meetings and things that are changing for that in that regard. So uh, stay tuned for, for next week. Thank you to all of our supporters. Thank you to this amazing panel. Thank you. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on in this webcast podcast.